Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined by Sean Tyson, CEO at Quietly. Sean, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you and I have, have known each other quite a long time. We go way back in the, the agency landscape here, here in Vancouver, but I usually open these episodes by going back to the beginning of, of our guests' kind of career journeys. So maybe let's start there. Can you kind of share like how you kind of got your start in marketing, how it's kind of progressed over time and how you ended up at, at Quietly? Sure. Yeah. So I did an undergrad of business and then I concentrated in marketing. So I knew I was going to end up in the space to some degree. Most of my experience is agency side, kind of all things Marcom. And the first gig was um, in PR. So I worked for a small agency, did everything from like traditional media relations to more like experiential and guerrilla stuff, which was cool. Uh, from there, I went into advertising formally. So worked at a creative agency called Taxi, which is now part of the WPP network. Um, but that was, that was fun, learned quite a bit. And then from there, went to a little digital shop that you know well called Invoke, uh, doing you know websites, mobile apps, uh, and of course, social media. Actually, when I joined, it was like pre-Hootsuite. So it was pretty formative time, um, figuring out the, the space as we saw the mix of activities and marketing change, but also as we were putting edges around like product and software and, and playing the venture game. So yeah, I mean, that, that kind of led us to where we are now, which is like with all these channels across social media and these tools to manage them, like what content are you putting on these channels and why, and how are you using data to make those decisions? And so really quietly was born as a response to that. Um, but for the most part, it was into agencies and then kind of, you know, the mix of activities that led me into to content marketing. Basically. Yeah. And it, it evolved from there. And so, yeah, anybody who's listening, who isn't familiar with Invoke, that's where Hootsuite kind of came from and was, was born from. Right. So yeah, you've obviously seen, seen a lot of different things in kind of working on the client side of things through agencies, but also like kind of witnessing the birth of, of a huge tool that's used by, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of marketers around the world. You know, the topic of, of this episode is all around the future of content marketing. Like what a clickbaity title here. Where's the state of the union for content marketing as you see it right now, right? Like this, this phrase content is king or content marketing, like, duh, everybody listening is like, uh-huh. But like, you know, as someone with, with your background, you've kind of been in it a long time. You were someone who I looked at as kind of like an early adopter of like, we are a content agency or a content marketing agency. And like, that's kind of our core competency that we want to focus on. Um, yeah, maybe just kind of start with with some color and background context around that, like how you're seeing it, how it's evolved and kind of where it's at today. So I can go super deep here, but I'll start by oversimplifying a bit of a context for how we arrived at content marketing. So at the beginning, we were in a broadcast era for you know, hundreds of years. It was, it was television, radio, whatnot. And um, essentially advertisers were using that as a medium to get their message out. Then the internet is born and you know, search engines are quite helpful. Digital marketing essentially is born. Then you get into like social media, like I mentioned before, all these different channels and conversations and user-generated content. And then now it's it's getting into what is being described as essentially the content era. Yeah. And again, what are the things we are providing out on these channels to provide value? Because it isn't a one-way street, it's a two-way street. And so brands are effectively acting like publishers because they're competing for attention with publishers. Mm -hmm. And so if you are 
a consumer brand, you're not just looking against your direct business competitors, but your content has to be as good as like the best publications out there. So, you know, whether that's GQ or Esquire, like your consumer expects your editorial and your content to be as good as theirs. And those expectations transcend across categories from publishers to brands. So I think content marketing as a practice has become more important because of this reality. Mm-hmm. I also think like HubSpot helped make us all understand content marketing in its current form. Like yeah. I think they kind of equated it with like, you have a blog and you create content to get organic search traffic and, you know, there's sort of jobs to be done there. But I think the, the evolution of how consumers engage with brands and, you know, channels and content, I think we're, we've essentially arrived at this content era and Seth Godin talks about this a lot where content is kind of the only form of marketing that's left. And so, yeah, I think content like the definition of content is like a, it's a type or content marketing is a type of marketing that involves like the creation and sharing of information or assets, but it's not explicitly promoting the brand. It's emulating interest in it. So I think that's more important than ever when you have to compete so much harder to get attention. Yeah. It's interesting hearing you kind of talk about that, that HubSpot example. Cause I think about that, like the parallel that I draw in my mind is almost like what Amazon has done to e-commerce and shipping. Right. Where it's like, you know, HubSpot was kind of the original gangster. There are probably dozens of other examples that you and I aren't going to mention on here. But like, you know, HubSpot being like, hey, we're going to invest in this. And, you know, because we want to compete for people's attention and and share of their time to spend time with our brand, whether or not they buy something from us or not. Um, But I think about like with Amazon, why I draw that parallel there is, you know, this expectation of same day or next day delivery or free shipping or whatever that is that has been transferred on to other brands. And that's just now consumers expectations, right? So like what you were kind of saying just around from a content perspective is previously brands were like, yeah, you know, we don't really compete with GQ because we're selling, you know, a can like a consumer package good, like a can of pop or, or soda water, you know, but now the demands that consumers are kind of, or the expectations that consumers have around content is like, yeah, when I'm like engaging with a brand or spending time, I'm choosing in my 24 hours of the day, what I consume and who I spend time with. And so previously it was like, okay, how, how, you know, this is the time when I buy something, but now we're seeing a lot of brands are having to extend even further in to that kind of um, editorial side of things to be able to earn their attention. And I think like my hypothesis, and I'd love to be able to get your take on this is like, why do you think that is? I think it's because of, uh, you know, an oversaturation, like we're just seeing so much stuff and, and with, with social media, things have, have evolved, but, um, yeah, it just seems like more and more, we've kind of been marching to this, like your company needs to think like a media company, regardless of what you're at. And now like, we're very much there where it's like, if you're not thinking like a media company today, like you're completely out to lunch. What do you think about that? Yeah, uh, no, great comments. So two things, number one, HubSpot also in that you know equation to like inbound and like content marketing was just, it was a quantity game. It was like create all the content to capture all the things and you yeah. know, get all the traffic. So I think there's a quality versus quantity argument there. Yeah, And I think there's also been a tendency of brands to almost over-index on being a publisher, but mm. they lose track of the business objectives and understanding yeah. how this investment is going to return. Yeah. And so you've seen brands create a magazine and the content can be good, but is it driving the business or are they do they have a sophisticated understanding of how that's going to attribute success? And I don't, I don't think they've done that um, 
in many cases, it hasn't been done super successfully. So mm-hmm. we kind of, the hype curve came, we swung into content marketing, editorial magazine, and such, yeah. and, then, and then sort of peeled back to be like, I don't know, was it working? So I think we will continue down this path as you're describing into mm-hmm. this, I guess, competition to see who can create the best content and therefore capture the most attention. Mm-hmm. But I think there needs to be some nuance around, are you like saving your audience's attention? Or are you seizing it? And if you're going to seize it, you've got to do it with like utmost quality, because as we said, the expectations are there and they're high. Mm-hmm. And so I think the brands can behave like a publisher, but that can mean a lot of different things. And totally. You know, this example with GQ and Esquire, that's great for B2C, but even in the world of B2B, which are, you know, we have over half our clientele is B2B, their customers expect your content to be as good as Gartner, Forrester, IDC. So the same principle applies. Yeah, You do need to be differentiated and you have to have a point of view and you can't play that HubSpot game where you're just like cranking out content, to, mm-hmm. you know, capturing attention. It's got to be uh, and you know, it's got to serve a purpose. It's got to play a role. So yeah, it, it, a couple of things that like come to mind there is it's, you know, you're kind of speaking of this pendulum, right? Like the brand and performance pendulum. And like, it's like, to your point, it was like, first it was like, no, no, wow. Marketing, like let's swing over to brand editorial, you know, that sort of thing, whatever. And then to your point, shit kind of gets real and people are like, whoa, whoa, hold on. There's a business here that needs to happen. And like, we need to kind of strike a happy medium. So the pendulum swings back to performance and, and, yeah, I don't know. I think like th- there are probably a handful of brands that have kind of figured out that balance because it is a delicate balance of like, how are you kind of making sure that you're you're doing both? I think about something when, you know, back in my time when I was working at Red Bull, really around like this kind of mentality, and this has kind of shaped my mentality for how brands should market in general is whether whether you buy our product or not, you are going to spend time with our brand. And, you know, that was kind of a thing that like, that's kind of how we operated when, when we were there. And I think, you know, we're starting to see a lot of other brands do that as well, which is, Hey, you know, whether you're, whether you're in store buying our thing, we ideally, we hope you do. That's the idea of marketing is like art for the sake of commerce to get someone to buy commerce being the keyword. Um, But at the same time, if you're not going to buy, I want you reading our magazine, reading our blog posts, watching our videos, you know, tuning into our webinars, whatever it is in, in B2B, B2C. What do you think about that? I mean, that's kind of something that I'm always trying to preach to to customers of ours, just to think about it in that way is like getting someone to spend time with you. It's like, how can you use content to take care of your audience or consumer until they're ready to buy if they need to buy? Yeah. Well, if we think about content in the way that we're describing now, which is essentially like editorializing some sort of experience. We also need to unpack that into like where in the journey or where in the funnel that's happening. Because mm-hmm. to your point, I think most brands were like, it's it's editorial. It's all upper funnel activity. That doesn't have to be the case. You could be editorializing things from a post purchase, like a cross sell, upsell, you know, it could fall under loyalty or advocacy. And so I think we need to have a more sophisticated view of, of where the practice of content marketing can play a role within the journey of your customers or segments. So that can help. And then to your point, like, you know, not everyone's going to be funding a full-fledged media network, though, if you do it right and the content is good enough that people are willing to pay for it, then it can be a rev center, not a cost center. It can be accretive to the business. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say, if I really zoom out, uh, is if you are a CMO or you are, you know, head of demand gen, like you're going to need these things to drive the business, but we can remind ourselves that people buy magazines. They like pay for this content. And then on the other hand, they actively block 
ads. And so I would just ask mm. the director of marketing and communications, like what side do you want to be on? Like I get there's a mix of activities you're going to do, your advertising, your programmatic, you're going to do lots of things in, in, in PR and media relations. And, and the owned, earned, and paid stuff is converging. We know that. But yeah. again, I, I come back to that very sort of trite and simple like analogy, which is like, what's, you know, if that's, if we're talking about consumer engagement, which is what we're talking about, then like what side do you want to be on? A place yeah. where people are willing to pay to spend their time or where they're like actively avoiding being interrupted by you, no matter how hard you try, how much money you spend. And again, I come back to that evolution of like from broadcast to search. It's, it's all around like the nature of how we choose to spend our time. And if time is value, then what are you delivering in exchange for that value? So, yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to like, you just kind of reminded me of one question that I wanted to specifically ask you. So you know, when I, when you and I would always kind of like jam over beers around content marketing and that sort of thing, early on, you were kind of talking about early on in Quietly's existence, you were, you were always kind of talking about like content across the business. And I think like that was quite a novel thing that, you know, I'm thinking like five, seven to 10 years ago when we, we first met is, you know, I, I think most people listening are like, yeah, content marketing sits in marketing, but like, you know, kind of, you've done a lot of work over the years of content in different areas of the business, HR, you know, sales, all that other side of things. I'd love to like, if you could kind of just like expand on that and talk about that and maybe just kind of give some examples of not, not necessarily like speaking out of turn about like confidential things for clients, but like innovative ways that people are taking content that would typically sit within marketing and kind of deploying it across the business. Sure. So in a nutshell, we help clients understand what to create and why, and then we help them create it and we help them measure it and then, you know, build capabilities around communicating in, in these spaces. But as you said, those spaces vary and it's not necessarily content to support a campaign and market. It's not content that would fall under marketing or even communications. But even if you start to just unpack those two things, yeah, is it like internal communications or is it external communications that you're still looking to editorialize versus just put out a release? And then there's a lot of programs internally where you're driving awareness. So from an HR perspective, it's not just to project an image outwardly to attract candidates. It's also internal enablement and in, internal comms. And again, I think the, the, the people who run those areas of the business understand those areas of the business, but they're not marketers, they're not communicators, and they're not professional like editorial people. So I think there's opportunities to elevate content and the way they are communicating their respective things by adopting some of these content marketing principles. So some examples that I can offer would be, you're launching an internal program and you're just driving awareness around it. Like your employees are busy. They, they have a lot of things to do. And so we do work with a very large organization to drive awareness and engagement and essentially adoption of the, the tools within this program. And yeah, by looking at it from almost a Marcom lens, we were able to make it seem a lot more appealing than just, hey, this program exists, please read the memo, go to our internet. It was like, hey, we have these stories to tell around what's happening within this program and the success that, um, that we're seeing as a result. And that can hook people in and get people more engaged as a result. So um, I can't really say who that's for, but <laughs> totally that's fair. like internal <laughs> enablement, but you know, broad scale comms and content programs around an internal program. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you talked about HR for sure. Everyone's trying to get their employer brand in order, their employee value proposition, yep. how they articulate that. I mean, is that falling on the shoulders of an HR professional or like a marketing professional who really mm. can see the lens of, you know, all things, uh, human capital, people. Yep. And so 
a lot of work there. And then that immediately leads to work in and around diversity and inclusion, because how you are communicating and how aware you are of the language you use tends to fall under DNI. But again, like, are they professional communicators, like looking at all those inputs and data points and, yeah. and contextualizing that within everything else the brand is doing, either in market externally or internally. So there's a lot of projects and missions that take us into these areas that I would say are adjacent to marketing. Yep. And then the last comment I'll make is being brought up into the C-suite because mm. everyone is a thought leader, but they don't have time to write or create all these op-eds or this commentary because they're busy running the business or they're busy in the boardroom. And so yep. we have the privilege of interacting with the C-suite or very senior stakeholders within an organization and helping them get their point of view out or you know, evangelizing certain things. And so that's pretty fascinating too, because you're, you're therefore totally up out of marketing and you're almost looking down at marketing and, and it feels a bit like it's falling into earned and public affairs and corporate affairs, but yeah. we're trying to editorialize and create a more compelling so what, because like you said at the beginning, everybody's competing for attention. So yeah, yeah it, it, it certainly takes us into very interesting territories. And because of that, we really have to understand the businesses we are operating within, the, their business models. And so for a lot of our, I guess, you know, for our strategy team and our analyst team, they're kind of like BAs more than just marketing or creative planners because yeah. they have to understand the ecosystem, the industry, the space, and the economics of what we're doing. Because we're making a case for content programs to drive the business. We're not just spending marketing budget on content. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I want to I want to kind of switch gears here a bit. Like, you know, we've kind of talked about how competitive it is to just earn someone's attention in 2022 and beyond. What would you kind of say are the the key ingredients for great content marketing? Like, what would kind of be the the buckets and then I will have a follow-up question after that ar- around some of those pieces and that follow-up question I think is like what is it like an, an obvious miss that you see brands making? Great questions. Okay, the first one is pretty easy because we have some key tenants here that we follow. So just three things. Number one, know your audience. Sounds obvious, but know your audience, know your content. Number two, know their respective journeys and therefore the jobs to be done with the content. So if you understand your audiences, your customers, your segments, where they spend their time and how they spend their time across the life cycle of the journey with your brand or without. So objectively, like what's your comms planning if you understand how they behave across their journey. And then the last part is like use data, use a lot of data to substantiate your understanding of all of that. Some things can be anecdotal, some things can be already defined, but if you know your audience, you know your journey and you're taking a data-driven approach to confirming all of what I've just said, then you're cooking with gas. The other thing I, I would add to the journey part is when we think about the journey, we think about where they spend their time, we're it's implied that you're considering threats or others competing for their attention. So mm-hmm. through that, you would uncover insight and opportunity from the landscape or like the white space around what are other people doing or not doing. Yeah, yeah those three things are typically the fundamentals to our approach. Mm-hmm. And if we are doing those ideally in that sequence, then you're probably gonna uncover the right jobs to be done and the right creative opportunities or territories. And then your content should I guess by di- by definition, it be engineered to perform because you're in like the fertile air t- um, territories. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, like, I don't know, I imagine you've had a lot of exposure to different businesses over the years or different, different just marketing people talking about things or approaching things. What's something that you think that maybe mar- content marketers or, or marketers in general kind of get wrong when they're approaching? Like what's kind of like a big mistake that you commonly see 
Yeah, I don't know if it's like a mistake or if it's something they're not thinking about. I think all of us as marketing professionals are thinking a lot of things and we're, yeah. we're up on it. But I think it's the way they think about certain aspects that could be improved. And so for that, I'd probably say there's a default assumption to be on social media, number yeah. one. Or we over-index or, or it's hard for us to imagine doing what I'm describing outside of digital. But if you know your audience and you know your journey, then the channel should should come as a result. So mm-hmm. we've had some clients where the channels aren't digital. And so, you know, if you're business to business and you're selling into doctor's offices and it's medical records, like, you know, like they get their information by fax. So yeah. Sometimes Probably not TikTok. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and even then, like LinkedIn, like are your prospective buyers on LinkedIn? Maybe they are, but are they spending time on LinkedIn? Are they in the feed? Are you trying to target them? Like maybe that's not the move. And so you could look at less traditional areas like forums or blogs or trade publications where they're less obvious to the current digital savvy marketer. But mm-hmm. I would make an argument that that's the more appropriate path. And so I would... All of that is to say, I think we just tend to default, like you should be on Twitter, Facebook, and stuff, maybe TikTok. Yeah. And I think the channels should be dictated by, again, an understanding of your customer and where you can provide value for them and importantly, where they spend their time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that would be my, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I can echo that. I feel like channel selection is such a hot topic. And, and I feel like it's like recently I was just on a, a, a call earlier this week that I, I said this phrase out loud to someone. I was like, if I got a nickel for every time a marketer asked me, should we be on TikTok? I'd be a millionaire right now sitting on a yacht somewhere. And I, I feel like that, that channel selection to your point, the last kind of like decade has been like pretty straightforward, right? Like you have your kind of standard default mix. You're seeing TikTok as a platform kind of, kind of rise up recently, but I'm always shocked at just how many, how many marketers are just showing up kind of everywhere. They're like, well, we have to, this is what we're doing everywhere. And I'm again, yeah, I'm just shocked that how many don't stop and look around and go, wait a second, does this actually make sense for us as a business? Like it might've made sense two, three, four years ago to be as active as we are on this platform, but is the juice worth the squeeze in terms of channel selection? And then, you know, obviously going a layer deeper is like, okay, are we, how much time, resources, money are we spending programming that, that channel with content? Are we doing it effectively? Like, I feel like that's kind of like the thread that starts to get pulled um, on, on the sweater, so to speak. So yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because it all is kind of like intertwined and connected. Well, just, just to follow on, I think there's also a tendency to say, well, if you're B2B, you shouldn't be on Insta mm. or Pinterest, but I think the strategy, I mean, you, you can still target professionals on those channels they're 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 people and they're going to spend time personally in their own time yeah. on those channels so maybe it's a paid or you know for performance maybe there's a strategy to target them on those channels from an aided awareness perspective but that doesn't mean you need to be posting tons of organic content on that platform in mm-hmm. order to drive that objective you could say you need to show up there but then your real sort of content or your middle of funnel or, or owned channels is probably where they're going to come if there's intent and so mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I, I, as we're talking, it's all, all about strategy, but I, I do think that the where people are spending their time is changing. Great. It's going to continue to change. So we have to continue thinking about what's appropriate. But all of these channels offer such sophisticated paid and targeting capability mm-hmm. that you can, you can get on there and get in front of people, but that doesn't mean you have to be like creating tons of content for that 
platform natively or have a lot of organic content. And you're seeing a lot of brands too, where it's all paid and dark, but there's nothing on their feed, or maybe they just have one post. Yeah. Yeah. So again, take the business case around the resources required to do that. And do you put it into working spend versus um, non-working spend? So yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. It's, you know what, it's an interesting mix. And I would love, I, I want to get your opinion on this. Like I, I've talked about this on previous episodes and and with my background kind of working in content marketing, you, you have the phrase content is king. And then you have like, uh, like I kind of actually sit more on the fence that I think distribution is king. And you do have these kind of two, like make something awesome. And if you make something awesome and put it out there, people will find it and it'll go off. And then you kind of have the flip side of it to be like, that doesn't actually work anymore. Everybody is creating great stuff. And so optimizing it for distribution is really kind of how it gets picked up. And the the, the thing that changed my thinking on this was um, I read a book called Hitmakers um, by a guy named Derek Thompson from The Atlantic. And um, it's basically the science of popularity and like why things go big. And he kind of gave a bunch of examples of things that like when they were first released, totally flopped. And then later on, they like popped off because of uh, distribution. So one example he gives um, in the book is the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, right? So like this film, I think it costs like 25 million bucks to produce. It, it, it debuted at the box office. I think it did like 16 million in sales. And like last time I checked, that's not really a success when you're spending 25 million, you make 16. Um, so it lost a bunch of money. I think it got nominated for an Oscar. Um, it didn't end up winning. And then it kind of like went away. But two years later, TNT bought it as like a TV movie and it just took off. And now it's on IMDb's like top 100 movies of the last hundred years. Like it's on this list. And it's like people who say content is king, that piece of content was the same same as it was on day one versus like when it kind of made that list. It's just the difference was distribution. It was getting piped into millions and millions of homes via television. So I know that's kind of like a long-winded, like my thoughts on it, but like, I'd love to hear hear your take on that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's classic content versus pipes battles. This is where you see the, the Comcast and the NBCs and the, it goes up to that level. But I think you're right. I, and, you know, content is king, context is queen or distribution is king. Yeah. It's a relationship for sure. And I think with the decline of organic reach on some of these social channels, you're seeing distribution being more important for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And then, you know, on the other side, the person is going to be like, well, if you don't have good content, like, you know, there's nothing there at all. to say. Yeah. I think there's a balance for yeah. sure. I would never be flippant to say like, it's not about distro or paid, you know, it's, it's all part of the mix. I would come back to a more philosophical approach to marketing. And I would say, if you have content programs and you're building, uh, developing audience on your own channels, then you don't have to pay to rent or access those channels. And so yeah. I think for a lot of businesses that were developing audience on Facebook and their related properties, they were frustrated when the organic reach was declining and they had to pay more to reach them. And they're like, dad, it's like, well, if you had your own email newsletter, that was really solid. You wouldn't have to pay to send them an email every time. Or if your website was just so good, then they would come to it. Yeah, <laughs> People would come to it on a regular basis. Yeah. You see, there's good examples of that. And there's bad examples of that, but I, I, I think that debate is, you know, age old and it will continue. I think we'll yeah. see we'll see that continue and it will be even more interesting when, you know, we're entering a cookie list future and tracking and targeting will become arguably less effective and people like Apple are taking a stand. And so there you could argue, okay, well, content will this the scales will tilt a bit more in their favor. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, we'll see. I, I think it's 
yeah, it's going to, con- that debate will continue for sure. Yeah. I, I wonder, I'm, I'm curious about that just because you think about, you need both, right? Like you need to have these like shared earned platforms, but you also need to build owned. And like, how do you strategically structure all of that stuff in a way that you, that can benefit you, but doesn't like cannibalize your efforts as, as well. Right. Like, cool. You're building a big audience on, you're renting a big audience versus like, how are you bringing them to, to your own land that you own, so to speak, to continue that, that metaphor. That's something that I feel like marketers struggle with day in and day out. And I don't, I don't think there is like a perfect answer. I think it's like case by case basis and, and setting things up and taking a more strategic look to it. But yeah, I always think about, you know, do what you can to get people like there's kind of different layers of the funnel, right? So like, if they don't know about your brand, you're obviously going to like maybe try and advertise to reach them or create content for them to search and find it on Google. Cool. Then it's like, okay, can we get them to follow us on social? And then once they follow you on social, can you get them to come to your website and maybe spend a little bit of time there? Will they subscribe to, can you get them to subscribe to your newsletter? Like as like, it's almost like these micro commitments, like down the funnel as you go. Um, but I think like thinking like that is, is quite, can be quite a tough subject when, or concept to grasp because marketers are juggling so many different things. So I completely agree. I think it is going to continue to be one of those kind of age old battles, but it will be really fascinating to see like how this kind of impacts it. One of the things that where my brain goes to is I'm like, are there going to be some companies that just go absolute gangster and are like, we're just going to produce the coolest stuff, but it's only going to be on our channels and that's it. And like, they kind of take a stand. I think like, what was it? Lush was like, we're quitting social media. We think this is bad. And like, I think they were able to do that because financially, like, I think it was like, they were only taking like a $10 million hit that would sink some businesses, but they were like, Hey, it's a, it's, you know, 8% of our revenue. We're willing to take that hit. So yeah, I don't know. I'm curious to to continue watching this to, to see where that goes. Well, and to your point, I mean, so the Lush example is provocative, and they're a client of ours, and we and we I think they've made a you know a, a case to to understand how to approach it, and it's in line with how you see like consumers are okay. Put it this way: ten years ago, when social media like appeared, or twenty years ago when it appeared, everyone started following and subscribing to things, and I think we're seeing that decline as well. So people are less likely to just follow and sign up and it's like you're seeing it and so you know maybe they're they're playing into that but also organic like search as a as a this huge bucket of intent or we used to think of like organic search traffic as like kind of owned but now with rich snippets and google's developer kits like you can get the content from your site but you don't even go to the site you just see it within google so it's like yep. well, then what's the, what's the play there and then publishers or the brands are thinking about instead of spending millions of dollars advertising with this publisher each quarter, why don't I just buy the whole publication? So we have several of our clients that are considering that as well. And then you really do own and retain and develop an audience. Yeah, It's again, provocative, but the best examples, and these are total shameless plugs because they're clients, but yep. software brands that have done a good job of creating publications that are brands in and of themselves. And it creates they're hedging against what we're describing here. So CMO.com by Adobe, right? Intercom and Slack have like incredible blogs. And so those are good examples of like brands who are doing content marketing in a very sophisticated manner. They're running it like a publication. It's content operations, not marketing operations. Yeah. But to your point, they own those assets. They're not renting them. They own them. Yeah. You know, people, they're so good that people want to come and pay to advertise on them. So um, again, it becomes a rev center instead of a cost center. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the one example that everyone kind of recently pulls up is is HubSpot buying the hustle, right? And it's like, okay, like I, I would love to kind of 
think about that a little, like when I think about that is, okay, they probably got to a point where they're like, here's how fast we've been growing our audience as HubSpot. How much, how much has it cost for us to do that? And if we want to increase our, you know, our audience, our potential customer base, what's a way that we can go out and do that? Should we build it or buy it? Um, that was, that was really interesting. And I think like, that's probably a trend that we're going to continue to see happen. We've seen Thinkific right here in Vancouver. Um, I'm going to be talking with Cameron Uganic on another episode about that, um, about building a media company within a tech company. Like this is something, this is a trend that we're going to continue to, to see. I want to, I want to kind of switch, switch gears a little bit here as we, as we kind of wind down the episode, you know, you've, you've been in the industry a long time. So I kind of want to ask you like, what, what excites you? You've seen a lot, like we're kind of entering this, the last, you know, I feel like it's been stable. Like the last, like, three to five years have been like pretty stable, but the last like 12 months has been like big changes with like privacy clampdowns, TikTok kind of like rising up to the level of like Facebook, Google duopoly. Like we're, we are kind of seeing a, a lot of big changes. What gets you most fired up from a, a content perspective today? Well, I get fired up that content is pretty durable and is the lowest common denominator as you're <laughs> describing all these changes. So for us, we're excited to play a role in this mix of activities and and feel pretty good about it. I think, so if I had to answer it more discreetly, I'd say a lot of people create think about creating net new content all the time. Like we need to create more content and it's all acquisition. And I think what excites us is the, re, the artful repurposing of existing content. Yeah. And to put it another way, like the iteration of content on your own channel. So, yeah. you know, you've, you've, created a piece, you've put it out for full public consumption. You look at how it's performed and what people are getting excited about and how they're consuming it. And then you can edit that piece and you can republish it. Yeah. And so you've, you've already invested in the asset. You can update the asset. You don't need to. And by the way, I'm, I'm saying that like figuratively, but also um, tactically like the yeah. asset be updated based on data. And so we, we've built a lot of software behind the scenes to allow us to do that. But I think that becomes interesting because you're, you're like tending to your content and you're nurturing mm. it, it's like creating new stuff and out with the old and with the new. And a lot of, and Neil Patel talks about this all the time. A lot of your best performing content is very evergreen. And yeah. over the, you know, the aggregate of, of over the time, the traffic attributed to that is going to far outweigh these like flashes in the pan of like, totally you know, and stuff. So for us, iteration on content and, and you see iteration in advertising because there's these huge DSP, you know, these ad tech is just optimizing in real time and often it's dynamic creative, but it's still an ad. Whereas I think from a storytelling perspective, you can get the data and understand like what's working. And Zero does this famously, right? So Zero, the accounting software will put a bunch of videos out organically on YouTube. They'll see how people are watching them. And then 24 hours later, they recut the videos and, and ship them again. And so huh. that, becomes, that becomes effective. Yeah. I'm not saying we need to optimize around what people are reading. You need to challenge your readers and you know do all the good stuff. But I think yeah. for us, iteration, we're very data driven in how we it informs our creative planning. But then that there's a loop, right? So it's iterative. And I think that becomes exciting for us, especially yeah. the tech and stuff. That's that's interesting. The thing that comes to mind there is I, I feel like you know, we're starting to mature or the marketing industry is starting to mature in thinking less about like these, these communication cycle spikes. Like I put a post, it, it goes big for 24 hours, two days, and then it like goes away. And like that more kind of like long form stuff. An example that I can give is back in the day before I kind of got into marketing, 
I ended up, I was a video editor. And so I worked at Arteryx here in, in Vancouver and I was like 20 year old little like action sports kid who was like super interested in like editing the videos of like gnarly climbing and mountain bikers and skiing and snowboarding. And one day the, the head of uh, customer success came to me and said, Hey, Charlie, I have a video I want to brief in. And I'm, I'm like, okay, like, what is it? And he's like, how to wash your Gore-Tex jacket. And I, and at the time I was like, well, that's super boring. Like, don't care about that. So went through, they shot the video. I ended up cutting it together. It was kind of funny. There was like washing machines in the forest. And it was, it was Devin, the customer success or customer service guy talking about like, here's what you do to wash your Gore-Tex jacket. And, you know, me being the little 20 year old shithead, like not knowing anything. I was like, this is lame. I checked back. Like I'd have to check it recently, but like as of a year ago, it was their second most watched video of all time on their channel. And now when people type in how to wash Gore-Tex jacket, that video comes up above Gore-Tex. Arteryx like outranks a brand for their own thing. And it had millions of, of views because not only were people actively searching for it, their customer service team is literally using that in responses on live chat via emails on, on the phone being like literally type into YouTube, how to wash your Gore-Tex and watch our four minute video about it. So yeah, I think like thinking about that when people, I think, think about content marketing, they're like, I want to go viral. How can I make this like thing go viral? Whereas, you know, what you just explained in terms of like expanding that cycle and taking a piece of content that maybe you created three years ago and increasing the shelf life of it. And, you know, it might not do a million views overnight, but if it does a thousand, thousand views a day for five years, yeah well you remind me of another example of where content can play a role outside of marketing and that is like customer support and so mm -hmm. in talking to article and and the gang over there the you know faqs are helpful people want to know if they're buying furniture online there's yeah. a very consideration set and so we, we content can play a role in number one reducing calls to the yeah. call center or two reducing call times so these, yeah. these are very real business problems they have and so simply by editorializing faqs and then creating it more at lifestyle editorial, but then yeah. they can use it as ammo in their paid campaigns. Because if you're looking at furniture, you get retargeted, not just with the chair of furniture you're looking at, but um, with these things you probably care about, it's a job to be done. And to the mm -hmm. Gore-Tex jacket, if you own the jacket, you're like, I don't know, how do I wash it? Do I wash it? And so there's for sure a job to be done there. And yeah, yeah those are great examples, exactly, of content yeah. marketing. Um, I have a couple like rapid fire questions before we, before we wrap up here. Um, yeah. Are there any brands out there, clients or non-clients, whose content marketing you admire? Yeah. Uh, how much time have we got? No, I'm just kidding. I think <laughs> I, I said a few examples that I think have, they, they just do a really good job of that. Yeah. You can go up a level to what you're talking about, Red Bulls of the world. Shopify is launching their Shopify studios, eventually mm -hmm. produce their content. Even closer to home, like Rotman, you know, they've got a magazine now. It's very, yep. I like HBR, but it's, it's. That's a good example of content marketing to mm -hmm. drive this to the to the university into the program. But for me personally, we work with very sophisticated and large scale enterprises that are B two B software infrastructure. We may not know the brands, but for sure we're using their technology every day, and they completely understand the pains and gains of their segments and their space. And they run very broad scale content programs that totally drive the business, uh, drive pipeline, drive yeah. everything. So. Yeah, Okta, Exabeam, I mean, maybe not the sexiest examples, but certainly the most sophisticated. And then for us at Quietly, we're working with them on how to operationalize the strategy and how to think around the people process tools to, to continue building those capabilities and mature their content game because it mm -hmm. is already so good. So for yeah. me, it's just 
active. They have total coverage of content across personas, regions, stages of the journeys. They know what people are searching for within those very niche areas of their industries and verticals. So for me, we get pretty fired up on that because it's pretty nerdy stuff. But totally. I would I would offer that um, to balance the the cliche examples of Airbnb's magazine. And <laughs> Those are, those are fun and Red Bull, the great, great examples. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's but different. Um, one question I always ask everybody is how do you stay up to date on business and marketing? Like who are you following? What are you reading? What are you listening to? My clients, <laughs> our clients, I mean, talking, they're category leaders, they're paving the way and talking to them is forever inspirational. And so I would offer that. I don't get too inspired by the trade pubs and marketing, to be perfectly honest. I read the drum and Axios. This is helpful. But yeah, I don't, I'd say the, the discussions with clients are extremely insightful. And again, the, the the people we're working with are making all the right moves and they're inventing the next practices. They're not worried about best practices. And so for us, that's a very like intellectually stimulating place to be. And that's I stay up to date by staying close to the, close to the customers. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, very last question for you. Where's the best pay, place for people to find you online or get a hold of you? I'm sure there's probably going to be questions coming in after this episode goes up. Discord? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I don't know. I LinkedIn, I guess. I, I, um, I have a one-year-old now, so I'm pretty busy and I don't spend a ton of my free time hanging out online to yeah. you know, get in the conversation. But for sure, I mean, LinkedIn is probably the best, the best space to contact me. Cool. Awesome. Well, Sean, thank you very much for taking the time. I I really appreciate it. I always love nerding out and and jamming all things content with you. And I'm sure everyone listening to this episode is going to find a ton of value. So appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.